I imagine I could go back in our series of messages that we posted on Sermon Audio to figure out how long it's been that we've been in the Pauline letters. Actually, we did Paul's life prior to the letters, and um, we've been through a good number of Paul's letters. We've been through the Galatian letter, the first and second Thessalonians, as well as first and second Corinthians, and now we're in what's generally considered the great work of the Apostle Paul, his magnum opus, the letter to the Romans. And the um, significant thing is we've made it halfway through the book. Romans has 16 chapters, and we have made it through the first eight chapters. But it's an interesting place that we come to in this midpoint of the Roman letter. If you were to grab out of my library the commentaries I have on the Roman epistle, and you were to look at how the matter of commentary and such is divided up, in most of my commentaries, you'll find that most of the space devoted for commenting upon the scriptures is devoted to the first eight chapters. And rather, I will say meager, but less. I will definitely say less. I was looking at a couple of the commentaries, and I think John Murray on the first eight chapters. It was originally put out in two volumes. When uh, Ed Erdman's, when John Murray back in the, I guess it was the 50s or early 60s, he wrote his first volume on the letter to the Romans. He was a professor at Westminster Theological Seminary, or a really fine Old Testament scholar, very uh, in the Reformed Calvinistic understanding of the Word of God. And uh, his 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 volume theo- theologically is 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 um, amazingly good. Um, but that first volume was a rather, I think, 150 pages longer than the second volume. Although the first eight chapters was the first volume, and the latter eight chapters was volume two, yet the first was like 400 pages, and the, the second was like 250 pages. So that's the sort of thing that I think is average, is that people have given a lot more attention to the first eight chapters. The first eight chapters uh, are all the, the, the exposition of, of, of gospel. Uh, Paul says he's ready to preach the gospel to those that are at Rome and in the proclamation of the gospel. Is it warm in here? I'm feeling rather warm. Oh, you're feeling cold? No. Warm. Okay, so we're going to turn the heat down. So <laughs> It's not just me. I know, we never agree in this, in this church, but you can always... You can always put on a coat if you need to, <laughs> if it gets too chilly. But um, anyway, so just a, the first eight chapters is, is gospel exposition. And we think the final eight chapters, well, that's like, well, what is it? <laughs> what is those final eight chapters? Particularly, what is chapter 8 through 11? 8 through 11 sometimes seems to some people to be hardly belonging to the rest of the letter. And Paul's moving on into this statement concerning Israel, concerning Israel's um, unbelief and concerning his desire that they should be saved, as even his willingness to be accursed from Christ for his brethren's sake, who are Israelites. And he's getting into this whole statement about Israel and the promises and what do those promises mean and where does Israel stand in the face of those promises and is the word of God faithful? Is the word of God come to no effect in the light of Jewish unbelief? And then he gets into this whole matter pertaining to the picture of the olive tree of a Jewish foundation or a Jewish roots of this olive tree from which um, the branches come and branches are taken off because of unbelief and the wild olive tree branches are being grafted in being the Gentiles into this one olive tree and we come to the, the end of the whole mean, the whole statement in chapters 11, 12, uh, 9, 10 and 11 just with this great statement about the um, about the depth of the riches of the wisdom and of the knowledge of God. And we know Paul's celebrating something. He's celebrating something about the unsearchableness of God's judgments and his inscrutable ways are past finding out. Who has known his mind? Who has been his counselor of him, to him, through him, or all things? A great ending. But what, what is he celebrating in this? What is this great mode of praise all about? And, and sometimes it could be a little bit confusing, and you add to the problem of just kind of uh, just understanding how it fits in to the rest of the letter, the fact that Christians don't agree on this, that there's so many different opinions. It's probably one of the most debatable portions of the book of Romans, this uh, 
9th to the 11th chapter. And a lot of it has to do with different views on millenarianism. A lot of it has to do with understanding Israel and its place in God's purposes and will. How do you define Israel? Um, so many different things enter into it. And then you add to the whole matter the, the, the modern question of anti-Semitism in our world. You add to it just the reality that um, the Holocaust took place within uh, just a little bit outside of most of our lifetimes, or some, some of our lifetimes. And um, the whole question of what did the church do in the face of it? Where was the church in the defense of Israel? And was there not perhaps some anti-Semitism in the church that gave birth to some of the attitudes that allowed for the extermination of the European Jews. Those questions are, are raised. And in the face of the Holocaust, in the face of the, of the devastation that was done in the um, de- putting to death of uh, six million European Jews, uh, the church began to ask itself the question uh, of their own responsibility, uh, lack of a voice, or how was anti-Semitism being allowed in these countries in which the gospel once um, perpetuated in abundance and all kinds of answers are given to that but um, so all these issues come up and all these questions come up uh, biblical prophecy Jewish Gentile church synagogue relationships and all the rest and again we could be influenced by all these things to coming to a conclusion that may or may not be faithful to what the scripture itself says so much of what I'm going to be concerned to do is try to avoid some of these major uh, questions uh, of our day Uh, I'll have something to say about them I'm sure as we go through it but trying to address the question within the context of the letter itself because that's really what we've been trying to do so often the book of Romans we come to it with a, a sense of what this book is and I've given you several statements about what it's not it's not some manual for evangelism it's not some systematic theology and that enters into the whole question of how it fits in with the rest because you know a lot of lot of commentators are saying well well how does the doctrine here fit in with the doctrine that preceded it we have the doctrine of justification well how does this statement about Jew and Gentile relations and Jewish unbelief fit in to the doctrine and that's what people are attempting to do but I'm not sure that the doctrine of the letter is the most important concern I think it's the question of the issues in the church that is at the heart of what Paul's concerned with it's a letter it's a letter it's a letter to the church at a given point in time. It's a letter to the church with a given set of circumstances that are involved. And Paul is addressing this church, although he didn't found it, but yet with a pastoral heart. He desires to come among them, to, to provide them with a, some spiritual gift, to be edified by them as well in terms of their giftedness. He desires to proclaim the gospel to them. It's not gospel to the world, it's gospel to the church. In other words, the implications of the biblical gospel for the life that we as God's people live together as the people of the living God. And it's in the light of the circumstances where he's not just beginning in chapter 9, 10, and 11 to speak about Jew and Gentile issues. It's there in chapter 1. This is the only letter where he says that the gospel is to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Why does he do that? Why does he do that? A couple of times speak about to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Uh, sin is also an issue. He says to the Jew first and also to the Greek. It says later on. Twice he says that. And he says also a couple of times for there's no distinction between Jew and Gentile. He's dealing with Jew-Gentile issues all the way through. Why? Again, I believe it's because he's writing to a church that was founded largely by people influenced by the Jew- Jewish if not Jews themselves, yet God-fearers who were attached to synagogues, who were very aware of uh, the Old Testament people of God and looking to be part of them, uh, seeing Israel's story as their story, and then coming to see that Jews being um, um, caused to leave Rome uh, by the emperor. The emperor commanded all the Jews to leave Rome because uh, 
again, this is the historian Suetonius says they're over an issue having to do with Christus. And a lot of scholars, I think, rightly believe that's Christ that's being spoken of there. A little bit of misunderstanding of the actual name that was, you know, title that was given to Jesus, not Christus, but Christos. And it was over Christ. It was over issues of the, of the church and the synagogue that uh, the big fear arose. And uh, um, the Emperor Claudius just said, a pox on both your houses, you're all out of here. You're all out of here. And the Jews commanded to leave Rome. And that left the church without leadership that they once had. The leadership of the Jews that were likely converted on the day of Pentecost and went back to Rome and began to be part of the founding of that church and the leadership of that church, they were no longer there. And so into that vacuum came mainly Gentiles. And then when the next emperor came and the Jews were allowed back into Rome, now you have this question, where do they fit in now? Now you have a different ethnicity in, in its leadership. And, and though you want to say that in Christ is neither Jew nor Gentile, the reality is that these tensions exist. And these tensions were matters that Paul has to address. And he's concerned to say that all are under sin, Jew and Gentile. There's no one up on the other. There's no... Uh, person who could boast that he's not involved in the reality of a fallen race. He's, he's declared that Jew and Gentile are both under sin. And then he says, and we're being justified, all of us together, Jew and Gentile, uh, through, the, uh, uh, through the, the grace of the gospel. Uh, there's not a different way that Jews get justified from Gentiles. No, we all get justified in the same way through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And uh, so Paul is addressing these things in terms of bringing these parties back together in the recognition that we're all part of the same story. We're all part of the same understanding of reality in a fallen world and the grace of the gospel that's come to bring redemption and salvation um, and so I think that's the thread that's running through the whole thing. Paul's concerned with these matters of the unity of the church. Um, again, he's, he's concerned again about gospel issues. You can't say that those issues of justification that we've long seen in this letter is of no value or importance. And some people misstate, I think, the importance of the doctrine of justification by faith. It's greatly significant in understanding our right standing with God. It's greatly significant with regard to understanding how God saves sinners. But its main purpose is in the recognition that none of us got saved any differently than any other. And we're all in the same uh, uh, status within the church. And there has to be that sense of uh, regard and the reality uh, that we're all suffering together. We're all struggling together. We're to be helpers of one another. We all have the same Holy Spirit. We all have the same blessings of this great salvation. It's true of Gentile as well as Jew that there's nothing that can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That all those things are, that Paul is speaking about, he's speaking about in terms of the way in which all of God's people have a share in these blessings. We all participate in the reality of these blessings of God's salvation. And then the ninth chapter, as Paul begins this whole question of the relationship of Jew and Gentile in the church and how uh, the Old Testament particularly feeds into our understanding of God's ways and purposes with um, his people through history. And, and that's really an important understanding. Uh, it's an interesting thing. When you look at the book of Romans, uh, uh, we can do this just by uh, turning the pages of the book. Uh, you'll see that most of it in chapters uh, 5, 6, and 7 are just matters of Paul stating things. There's no divided lines here that indicate a quotation is being made from the Old Testament. There's no quotations from the Old Testament in chapter 5, although, of course, uh, the sin of Adam is mentioned, Old Testament. Uh, there's, no Old Testament there's no Old Testament quotations in chapter 6, although I think the whole matter of slavery and freedom from bondage in Egypt is undergirding the 6th chapter, but no, there's allusions, but there are no quotations. There's no quotations from the Old Testament in chapter 7, and there's... Um, only one quotation in chapter 8, when Paul quotes from Psalm 40, 44, uh, concerning the fact that uh, we're all getting killed. Uh, um, 
uh, and regarded a sheep uh, from the uh, uh, from the slaughter, even though uh, the people that are making that complaint are really serving God, and the fact that even in the Old Testament the righteous suffered, and the righteous suffer in the New Testament as well, because the sufferings of this life are preparatory to the coming glory. And the sufferings of this life are not to be deemed as being curses. They're, in fact, blessings. Um, Again, because Jesus has taken the curse for us. It's not like we're Old Testament people of God getting kicked out of our land because of unfaithfulness. If we get kicked out of our land, it's because we're blessed. Jesus says, blessed are you who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for yours is the kingdom of heaven. It's not a mark of God's curse. It's a mark of the legitimacy of of our faith. We get, we get persecuted for our faith. Um, the Old Testament people of God got persecuted because they didn't believe. <laughs> they didn't trust. Foreign armies came, exiles came, troubles came. It was because of their unbelief. In that sense, there's a clear difference. But I want you to note that, again, apart from that quotation, there are no quotations from the Old Testament. And that really does differ from chapter 3, in which you see this whole... A section called the Katada, where they, he quotes verse after verse after verse in chapter 3. Uh, you have quotations from uh, Psalm 32. You have quotations from um, uh, the Psalms and Isaiah. Really all through uh, chapter 3 and chapter 4. Uh, of course, references to Abraham and references to David. And then you come to chapters 9, 10, and 11. And you see, once again... The Old Testament is being quoted again and again and again. Uh, chapter 9, uh, verse 25 to 20, really the end of the chapter. Quote after quote after quote, quotes from um, Genesis, quotes from Malachi, quotes from Exodus, uh, quotes from, uh, well, in the next chapter you have quotes from Isaiah, Hosea, uh, Deuteronomy, Joel, uh, quotes after quote after quote, really all through this section, um, all through to chapter 11. And I think the reason you see a return of quoting from the Old Testament scriptures, again, early on it's done because uh, Paul's looking to show from the Old Testament scriptures that both Jews and Gentiles are under sin. He's looking to demonstrate that all have the need for the gospel. And he shows from both uh, uh, these Old Testament passages, passages where it's pointed out that Israel has sinned against God and the nations have sinned against God. And he brings all that together in demonstration of his argument. I think the question that comes up in chapter 9 is the theme that's stated in the sixth verse. He says, But it is not as though the word of God has failed. It is not as though the word of God has failed. This is the problem. Has Israel's unbelief caused the word of God to fail? Now, again, it's not something new that's come into his argument. I think there's something similar that comes up uh, uh, in chapter 3. Does their faithfulness in chapter uh, 3 and verse 3. Again, in in a context very similar to Romans 7 where it begins with the question in chapter 3, to what advantage has the Jew? That's chapter 3 and verse 1. To what advantage has the Jew? Well, Paul doesn't really give us um, an outline of the advantages. He says, uh, he asks asks the question, what is the advantage has the Jew? What is the value of circumcision? And then he says, much in every way. Much in every way. But he doesn't give us a full statement of what is the much in every way that you mean. He says, to begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. Put a period there. He doesn't have anything to that. The Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. He just says, to begin with, they were entrusted with the oracles of God. And then he goes on to other concerns. It doesn't come back to the question of the advantages of the Jew until chapter 9. Chapter 9, he comes back to the advantages of the Jew. Remember the question of chapter 3. Then what advantage has the Jew? What is the value of circumcision? Is there any value to this at all? Well, Paul has said much in every way, but he hasn't told us much about that much in every way, only that to begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. But now in chapter 9, he says about his kinsmen, according to the flesh, they are Israelites, and then he begins to give a sevenfold statement of what advantage the Jew possesses. 
Remember, chapter 3, he says, much in every way, but didn't, give, didn't fill out the outline. He said, to begin with, they were trusted with the oracles of God. But here, to them belong the adoption. Again, much in every way. To them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, the promises. To them belong the patriarchs. And then from their race, from the race of the patriarchs, according to the flesh, is the Christ. Is the Christ. What advantage has the Jew? Much in every way. Here is this great exposition of the advantages that the Jews possessed. And yet in the possession of all of those advantages, the reality is that most of them did not come to faith. And again, go back to chapter 3. When he asks the question, what advantage has the Jew, or what is the value of circumcision? He says in verse 2, much in every way, to begin with, they were entrusted with the oracles of God. And then he asks the question, what if some were unfaithful? Does their faithfulness nullify the faithfulness of God? Has the word of God not been faithful? Has the word of God not been fulfilled? Does their faithfulness nullify the faithfulness of God? I'm pointing out it's the same concerns. It's the same concerns. We're not moving in chapter 9 into something not anticipated. We're not looking at chapter 9 as something unrelated. We're not looking at chapter 9 as if Paul wrote some separate three-chapter discourse on Jewish-Gentile relations and just slipped it in in the book of Romans because, uh, well, hey, uh, he had much. He had more room on the scroll, so he just stuck it on in. No! He is expounding exactly what he began in chapter 3. Exactly what he began in chapter 3. Does their faithfulness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar. Has the word of God been rendered unfaithful because of Jewish unbelief? Well, again, that's the issue that he's returned to. Does their unbelief nullify the faithfulness of God? It is not as though the word of God has failed, is what Paul is telling us. Now, this matter of Jewish unbelief, Again, it's been an engine in the whole matter of anti-Semitism. Um, you have, uh, uh, you know I grew up in, as a Jew, and uh, I didn't get a whole lot of anti-Semitism growing up in New York because I lived in a basically Jewish section. But there were people that, I heard Christ Killer, I heard that growing up. Um, I didn't have, I didn't have a clue what it even meant to have being told as a Jew we were Christ killers. I didn't even know that Christ had died. I, didn't, I, mean, I grew up in a vacuum of any kind of biblical knowledge. I didn't know anything about it. But yeah, I heard those things. These, those things were said. And there is that reality that um, because of Jewish unbelief, uh, the Jews have been hotly slandered. Uh, people have taken the statement in the Gospels where the Jews uh, wash their hands and say, say his blood be upon our hands and upon our children as uh, basically saying that uh, I'm sorry it was Pilate that washed his hands and the whole stuff but the Jews made that declaration let his blood be upon us and our children as uh, some kind of a curse that was placed upon them and therefore they are responsible for the death of Christ well again there's no biblical reality to that that statement. The scripture tells us it was by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God that wicked hands took him and crucified him and slew him. It was God's will and God's purpose to send his son for the very purpose of being obedient unto death, the death of the cross. So this whole matter is nonsense. And the whole question of Jewish unbelief should fill our hearts with not hatred, but sadness. Sadness. Sadness that the human condition is such that people could be possessed of such advantages, that people could be possessed of such blessings from God and make such a poor use of them. And the reality of that should fill our hearts with that sense of, what about us who have been blessed with the gospel? We've been given light. We've been given understanding. We've been given truth. We've been given blessings after blessings after blessings. And what have we made of the things that God has given us? And so really the whole thing about their unbelief should bring us to the place that brought Paul. And that's not enmity. That's not 
loathing them or despising them or pronouncing curses upon them. He says, in fact, I'm speaking the truth in Christ, verse nine in cha- uh, chapter 9 and verse 1. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow, great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. Paul says, I'm torn to shreds. Anguish in my heart. And he not only says, I really feel torn to bits about their unbelief, but he says if it were possible, if there was a possibility, of which there is none, by the way, nothing can separate the believer from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. But Paul says, if it were possible, if I could have a wish and have it be granted, if I could come upon Aladdin's lamp and rub it and have a genie come out, and the genie says, I give you three wishes, Paul would say, of course, God would contravene what the genie would endeavor to do, because God's promise to his people is just that certain. But if a genie could ask for the wish, Paul would respond. I wish that I would be a cursed from Christ, cut off from Christ, anathema from Christ, that I would be under the ban of divine judgment for my own sins. If only that accursedness, being cut off from Christ, would lead to the salvation of the people of Israel. That's what Paul says. That's what Paul says. Now, again, it's a, it's a great response of the heart, and a genuine one that is filled with the reality of sacrificial love that we see demonstrated in Christ for his people. But only Christ could be cursed for our sins. We can't be cursed for the sins of one another. Moses sought that when the people of Israel had sinned in the matter of the golden calf in chapter 32. He says, what is the language? Let's turn there in Exodus 32, where Moses himself prays a prayer in the presence of God that basically says judge me in their place I will take the sin for them I will take the rap for them here it is in chapter 32 the next day Moses said to the people you've sinned a great sin this is the golden calf matter and now I will go up to Yahweh perhaps I can make atonement for your sin no you can't Moses might be a desire but you can't so Moses returned to Yahweh and said alas this people has sinned a great sin they made for themselves gods of gold but now if you will forgive their sin but if not please blot me out of your book that you have written blot me out of your book I will be sacrificed for them I will take your your just wrath and anger in their place Deal with me in judgment. Deal with them in mercy and in grace. But the Lord said to Moses, Whoever sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. But now go and lead this people to the place about which I have spoken to you. Behold, my angels shall go before you. Nevertheless, in the day that I visit, I will visit their sin upon them. No, Moses, you can't take this. You can't take the sin of the people away. There's only one Lamb of God who bears away the sin of the world. That's Jesus, and Jesus alone can make atonement for sin. And once he makes atonement for sin, that atonement is good (laughs) for eternity. It it, it can never be undone. The sins of the believer can never be unatoned for. And you can't take the sins of another group of people who are guilty of unbelief, that they would be forgiven and they would be saved. But Paul's desire is that that would be. And so... What fills his heart towards the people of Israel is a heart of great love. And so whatever you make of the subsequent statements that are made about Jewish unbelief or about divine sovereignty, about God having mercy upon whom he will have mercy and compassion, upon whom he will have compassion, of God loving Jacob but hating Esau, it's not reflective of any thing in God that warrants that we should loathe anybody anywhere at any time at any place we're called upon to love our neighbors as we love ourselves and we're called to view the sin and unbelief of a wicked world 
Yes, with horror, but not with anger, not with bitterness, not with the desire that, Lord, that you would send lightning bolts from heaven and consume them, but with deep and honest compassion of heart, desiring their salvation. I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. Now, again, I, I've been saying to myself, you had a bad week, <laughs> and I did. I came in late, I tried to make it clear, this is not the best of all weeks for me. And so I was really clear in my mind, I'm not going to do or attempt to do any sort of in-depth exegesis of the passage. I'm trying to keep myself from that, although the temptation is really there to go into it with a greater measure of depth. But I, I just want to present to you something of introductory considerations and concerns that when we get together again, we could then be able to do the more in-depth expositions um, with having a, a, a clarity of my, uh, in our mind of what the issues are. That again, the issues are the issues of the relationship of Jew and Gentile within the church, how they are to view one another. It's not to be viewing with loathing or hatred or bitterness or viewing the nation uh, in a way that makes them less a nation than the other nations of the world. I mean, Paul's the apostle to the Gentiles, so hey, love the Gentiles, but hate the Jews. No, there's no basis at all in the Bible for anti-Semitism, not in the least. And what Paul is concerned to do is he's concerned to set forth what God's done in history, what God's done through the people of Israel, and what God has ultimately done in the person of Jesus Christ that places every believer in a sense of great debt to the way in which God used his Old Testament people of God. That they misuse these benefits, but man, they preserve these benefits for us. We don't have any one of these benefits apart from the fact that the Jews preserve the scriptures, apart from the fact that they have given us their prophets who have prophesied of the days that have come to us, it's Jewish prophets, that all of the promises, all of the patterns of Old Testament in terms of covenants or Old Testament that's given by the Jews and it's given for us, we've entered into these benefits that are Jewish benefits. We've entered into these blessings that were Israel's, and they become ours. And since there's no reason to glory, but then there's also much reason to be humbled. And again, this whole matter that they have used these benefits so poorly, he's going to go on to chapter 11 and say, don't, don't be high-minded, but fear. If, if these guys got cut off for their unbelief, I mean, if you just forsake the ways of walking in God's ways, you're not going to be spared. Humble yourself. Get a humbled heart in the presence of God. These are matters of eternal importance, and don't boast in the fact that you're some elite group of people because you see yourself as elected. You see yourself as uh, part of the church and not part of Israel. Don't be high-minded, but fear. And so I think both of those aspects, that the, the Gentiles that might gloat or the Gentiles that might be high-minded are called to be humbled, they're called to fear, and the Jews are called to recognize that they are a means and a channel of great blessing that God brings to the Gentile world. And even Jewish unbelief is part of that whole business of opening up a door of entry of the gospel to the world. And so at the ultimate, at the end of the day, God's character is not impugned, His word has not failed, his purposes are consistent with one another, with, with, with his overall plan and purpose once we're cl clearly understanding it. And we'll come to the end of all this thing and really understanding what Paul can say, oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and of the knowledge of God doing what he did in the way that he did it. Who would have done it that way? None of us would have thunk it. None of us would have understood it. None of us could have... His ways are past tracing out. Who's known the mind of the Lord? Who's been his counselor? So if we rightly understand this passage, those are some of the benefits that we will, will accrue to us. Humility, thanksgiving to God, which is a good thing on a day that we celebrate thanksgiving, that we should be thankful in the light of God's will and purposes with the nations, 
And we'll recognize that nothing of this impugns the character of God, nothing of this impugns the word of God as having in any way failed. Now one of the things that enters into much of the modern discussion, and for a bit I'll talk about the modern discussion about Jew and Gentile, the synagogue and the church, is something that gets called supersessionism. Who's heard that word before? Mike, of course. Mike, Mike, Mike follows these, uh, these uh, arguments on the internet as I do, so we're on the same page with respect to that. Supersessionism. And um, here's supersessionism or replacement theology. I guess it's another big word that's used. Replacement theology. And, and the idea is, and it's, it's, it's spoken normally with a great, uh, kind of like a, uh, a bit of a, you know, yik. Uh, what would you call that when you say yik? It's horrible. You don't believe supersessionism, you know, replacement theology. It's real negativity that's directed towards it. And I'm not sure that all negativity is not warranted in, in some ways. Because the idea seems to be, in their minds, is that what people have been teaching about this whole matter of Old and New Testament is that the church comes to replace Israel. And so once you had God forming in people for himself, a nation for himself, uh, Israel by name and definition, and uh, now that gets all replaced by this new thing that's come into the world called the church. And the church and Israel have this separated identity, this separate distinction, and uh, one is Old Testament, that's Israel, and New Testament is uh, the church. And uh, it's because people say, well, these things are different, these things are separate, that the idea of one replacing the other or superseding the other is something that's viewed in a, in a negative light. And if that was all that, that they were advancing, I would say, yeah, okay, I, I think that probably is to be seen in a negative light. Because God doesn't have two people. God doesn't have an Old Testament people and a New Testament people. He has one people. There's one people of God. They'll come from the east, the west, the north, and the south, Jesus says, to sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of God. That sure sounds like one people. You come to the end of the book of Revelation, and you see this new Jerusalem come down from God, from heaven, and you see the foundation is what? The apostles. And the, is that right? Is the apostles, the, 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 and the pillars of the, of, the, of the twelve patriarchs. It's Old and New Testament. One people of God. There really are some groups that are supersessionists. Oh, I'm not saying there's not. But I'm saying I would be very opposed to this notion of supersessionism if what it led to was this two people of God sort of notion. And again, I don't think the topology, you need to think of biblical topology. I don't think you could say that Israel gives way to the church. It's a question of promise and fulfillment in which the entity that comes to fulfill the promises of the Old Testament people of God is not the church. It's Jesus. It's Jesus who is the true Israelite. It's Jesus who comes to fulfill what was failed through Israel's sin and disobedience to God. And we shouldn't underestimate that reality that the people of Israel were by and large an idolatrous, rebellious, heart of heart, stiff of neck, Sort of people met them, met Moses at the at the outset when he led them out of Egyptian bondage, and they wanted to go back to Egypt, and they made for themselves golden calves. It's interesting. It's in the context of the golden calf for the first time that in the Old Testament it says they were stiff-necked and hard of heart. And the whole idea of being stiff of neck and hard of heart, um, at least the stiff of neck part, the stiff neck part is the fact that uh, when you tried to take uh, I think we lived on a farm and every now and again the cows would just get out of the pen and they'd be running down the street or be at our kitchen table we see a bunch of cows running down the street and we see a bunch of farmers running after them and they were not easy to corral they had their own mind, they had their own will they had their own way and their necks were pulled away and to pull them back kind of stiff of neck going their own way rather than the way that the, uh, I'm not impugning I'm not saying that cows are rebellious or any human characteristic this is hard to corral I'm just saying and that idea of stiff of neck I think is because they worshipped a, a kind of a, an animal made it into a golden calf that tends to go its own way the people were going their own way they were stiff of neck just like a cow would be stiff of neck and hard to corral 
And I think the whole point of it is that we become like the things we worship. We become just like the things that we worship. You worship a golden calf, you're going to be rebellious like a golden calf, or a living calf, or a living cow, hard to corral. you be that kind of person. Um, but even, it's funny, the, 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 uh, the book of Isaiah it even says that animals are wiser than people because the ox knows its master's crib. They, they know who feeds them. They know where they get their food from. But my people do not know. My people do not consider. So human people can be even worse than, um, than animals with reference to their rebelliousness and their failure to acknowledge the goodness of God and the hand of God and who it is that feeds them. Um, but, but the point of it is that Israel was never fulfilling the terms of the covenant. They were never in obedience. Um, they said, all that the Lord said, we will do. But when did they say? When did they actually do all that the Lord said? I mean, like never. <laughs> like never. They never did the things the Lord wanted them to do. And so rebellion was, was, was the note. And when God speaks about a new covenant through Jeremiah, in Jeremiah chapter 31, it's this very aspect of the covenant that he says necessitates this new covenant. Because he says, I'll make a new covenant with the house of Israel, with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant I made with their fathers in the wilderness, which my covenant they broke. It was a covenant they broke. They were covenant breakers, not covenant keepers. And I'll make a new covenant with them, which will be unlike that. It will be an unbreakable covenant, because it will be a covenant in which the law will just be external, will be on tables of stone, will be in their hearts and in their minds. It will be a covenant in which uh, faith will be the aspect of uh, their relationship with me. They will look to me, lean upon me, trust in me, rely upon me. And hence their sins and their iniquities I will not remember. They'll be justified by faith, in other words, believing their sins will be pardoned, they will be forgiven of their sins, and they will know me. They will know me. Israel does not know. My people do not consider. They do not know me. They do not consider. And God says, I'm going to make a new people who will know me, who will know me. And, and it's not that we're great shakes, folks. It's not that we're just a better sort of people. It's not that we're, you know, morally superior. We're not. Because the covenant-keeping aspect of the new covenant is really vested in the fact that someone else kept the covenant for us, at least was obedient unto death, the death of the cross. Someone actually has provided a righteousness that we cannot give. That Jesus' obedience becomes our obedience. And that he, in essence, was the true covenant-keeper. This is my son, my beloved one, in whom I am well-pleased. That's what God said about his son. I am well pleased with him. And it's only as we come to him and believe in him and trust in him that we are now in him, in a living faith, by a living union. And we participate in him. And we participate in the benefits of his life and death and his resurrection and his ascension and his mediation and his intercession for us so that we being in him God can say of us, my beloved adopted children, in whom I am well pleased. Not because we're so well pleasing, we're just not. We're just not. But we are seen in Him. We are viewed in Him. We are participating in Him. And the way in which this covenant becomes unbreakable, the way in which we become more than conquerors, is through Him who loved us. It's through Him, not through us. It's not in our own virtue. It's not in our own obedience. It's not in our own capacity to wage a successful war. But Jesus has waged the war for us. And he has done all that was needed to bring us to God. And so it's not that the church replaces the synagogue or, the, or Israel. It's that Jesus is the fulfillment of Israel. And that Jew and Gentile alike come into the blessings of this covenant that God makes with people through faith in Jesus Christ that's, that's the way Paul is, is putting it forward he's not saying the church replaces Israel, he's saying the church enters into Israel's story you never thought you'd be Jewish did you <laughs> I've lived it all my life but 
you know, true Judaism or true Jewishness or true covenant participation and the blessings of Israel come to every one of us through faith in Christ. And so we enter into Israel's story. We enter into the reality of a saving God, of a redeeming God who brings us out of slavery and captivity and makes us to be his free sons and daughters, who takes us from slavery to sonship, who transfigures this whole matter of sufferings in this world so that they're not curses any longer because the curse doesn't belong to us. It was taken by our Redeemer, our, our substitute. Jesus has borne the curse for us so that these very sufferings that we go through are just leading us to glory. This whole transformation that grace, the grace of the gospel brings, this whole good news aspect of what the gospel is and what the gospel does, it's not because of what the church is, it's because of what its Savior is. It's because of what its Lord, who, who its Lord is and who its head is. It's what Jesus has done. So that's the picture we need to be seeing. Not church Israel distinctions, but uh, Jesus, the successful covenant keeper, and every other covenant that failed because of unbelief. That's the direction that it's going in. And that, again, there, there's one olive tree, but one. There's not two olive trees. It's not that there's a Jewish one and a Gentile one. It's not that there's an Old Testament one and a New Testament one. There's one olive tree. There's one tree of God's own planting. And we enter into it by faith. And... And it's a Jewish thing. Its foundation and its roots are all Jewish. <laughs> so, where's anti-Semitism and all of that? It's excluded. There has to be this sense of desire that Israel would be saved. There has to be this sense of longing that they would be brought to the knowledge of Jesus, who is their, their true and rightful Savior. And it's, it's tragic, it's heart-wrenching, it's devastating, it's tears the ribbons that they've not come to faith. And that heart of desire for the salvation of Israel should be an attitude of heart that brings us to have deep sorrow and deep anguish of heart when any people blessed with the privileges of God's word, blessed with the privileges of God's people present in their midst, they turn their backs upon their own mercies. They turn their backs upon, not, not that promises are given to other nations other than the Israelites, the promises of the Old Testament were given to them. And that's the issue here. Were they, were they kept? Was God's promises kept? Or was the word of God failing? Did the word of God fail? Or did the word of God come to be realized. That's the issue here. That's the issue. That God's word was in fact kept. When we understand in fact what it is God promised. That's I guess the final thing I'll say. In our introductory study to this this morning. Is that sometimes again people put God in their own minds. In the worst possible light. Because they think he promised them something he never promised. Lord, how in the world did I end up buying that house where it's nothing but a money pit? It's nothing but troubles from beginning to last. And I prayed about it. And, and, and I believed you were guiding me and you were leading me. And Lord, you led me down the road to, to ruin. Led me down the road to financial ruin. Lord, you didn't keep your, your, you didn't keep your bargain with me. Let me give you a word of, of just simple instruction. God never gave you any kind of word that you would not go down the road of buying a bad and troublesome and very expensive house that you have to put a lot of repairs. Where is the promise ever given to anybody that troubles are going to be evaded in this life? No, God is the wonderful God who is able to use those troubles to bring us to be humbled before him, to trust him more, to whatever else God is pleased to do through the trial, through the trouble. And that should be the worst of our problems. We've got a house that has you know, become more expensive than we expected. Hey, you have a house. How many people don't? I mean, we'll talk about Thanksgiving. Get, get real with the reality in which most of the people in the world live. And, and, and recognize how greatly benefited we are above all the people, most of the people of the world who are living in abject poverty who are wondering about their next meal, who are experiencing malnutrition and 
and hunger and they're not well fed and well housed and well clothed and that's the reality of, of life in the world and, 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 and so much of it is not the result of just as what they call acts of God some is and then our hearts go out and our compassion goes out and our help goes out and our but so much of it is the result just of man's wickedness of heart and his own hatred of other people and the wars and the conflicts and that's the human cause misery the human cause misery that exists in a fallen world but anyway there simply is no promise that was given that every Jew would be saved there's no promise that was ever given I mean just think about it every generation of the people of Israel failed rather than succeeded a whole generation died in the wilderness did God's word fail there? No, his word was not that every single son of Abraham by means of physical generation was going to be blessed with the land. Abraham didn't possess the land and Isaac didn't possess the land and Jacob didn't possess the land and they went down into Egypt for 400 years. Those, that, those generations didn't possess the land. So there must be something more that God's speaking about in those things. There must be something other than what people are expecting the promises to mean. And that's the, that's the great thing, I think, about Romans 9, is that Romans 9 sets out the definitions. Who is Israel? What is God's promise? How are we to understand these things? What does the Word of God actually say and you know, that's the reason for all of these quotes. Paul's given you all of these Old Testament quotes to say, here is exactly what God promised. And it's not what you think. It's what God said. Well, that's what we're heading for. We're heading to understand the terminology of the Bible with reference to the promises of God and who it's for and who it's given to and how it's fulfilled and to do it in such a way that we're going to not be hating on anybody, be blessing God for his goodness to what we have received and what we have been given, and then recognizing that we have, as Paul saw, this great responsibility to have a deep sorrow and anguish in our heart for any and all who do not share the blessed blessings we possess. And so I think it's a good way that Paul began this section. God will, we're going to take it up next week in terms of the way in which Paul speaks of the true definition of Israel in the latter part of verse 6, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. We'll look at that, God willing, next Lord's Day. Let's pray together. <clears throat> Father, we're thankful for our time together in your word. And Lord, I, I would pray that something that's been said this morning in introduction to what we'll be looking at in successive weeks would be genuinely helpful to, to us to just understand this passage a bit better, uh, to understand your own promises better, and just understand the balance that your word gives to us about our understanding of your sovereign ways, as well as to our understanding of how your sovereign ways are, are something to be admired, something to be praised, something to be blessed, something to be drawn comfort from, but never to be used in a way that gives us to think we've, we've just understood the world in, in some way of, of, of perfection. Because there's so much, Lord, that you tell us that is for our learning, but so much that you don't tell us that we just simply need to be humbled before you in the light of. And so we pray that both humility and love would be the result of our studies, and we pray that we would honor you and admire you for all of your marvelous works we come to the end of these chapters and be able to echo Paul's words of, of, of doxology for of you and through you and to you are all things and to you belong the glory forever and ever. Amen. We ask you to hear us as we come to you this morning with our praise and with our petitions. And as we come in Jesus' name, amen.